Konnichiwa. It's Zach Langley Chichi. I'm so popular and I'm very excited because today is the start of a brand new project. Welcome to Chichi no Book Club. Woo! Um, so basically, every month um, we're going to be reading uh, texts from a uh, pre selected list, uh, books recommended and wanted to read by my patrons. And uh, this is a way for all of us to gather as hostess and fan of I'm So Popular <laughs> Discuss Literature. Uh, if you want to join next month,、uh, you just have to subscribe on the Patreon, $5, patreon.com slash I'm So Popular. And I have、um, a whole gaggle of wonderful little friends here today to discuss Nightwood by Juna Barnes.、Um, so, who are all of you? There's a lot of you. So, Alex, you want to go first, dear? Absolutely.、Uh, my name is Alex. I am a huge fan of the podcast, and it is,、uh, it is my absolute pleasure to be present at the proceedings today. Welcome. <laughs> Next,、um, how would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm Amar, and as my Discord bio says, I'm a Thought Topics stock villain. You know, I wear an extra small Thought Topics t shirt. I work in consulting. I have a cute little email job and live in Brooklyn. <laughs> a demon. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> okay, and next we have our friend Coco. Oh, yeah, Coco is next. Hello, dear. Yeah. Hi,、uh, my name is Coco. I'm. What all do we need to like, say to introduce ourselves? You know, I never have stipulated in the past. So, whatever you feel just best describes、uh, you. I'm a Leo Sun, Aquarius Moon, Sagittarius Rising. I'm 22. Love it. And then we have、um, one of my favorite special transgenders in the whole world. <laughs> Thank you.、Um, hello, my name is May. Samantha couldn't make it. So, they had to find like another 19 year old blonde <laughs> trans girl. So, I'm just like feeling in for her. You get to play Samantha tonight. Yeah, you can do a Samantha impression for the duration of the show and see where that gets you. Okay, and then、oh、we、gosh. have、um, one final one. <gasps> Who are you? Hello, my name is Taylor, formerly known as Lunch Break Booty Shake.、Um, yeah, I'm a big fan. I've never been on a podcast. This is exciting. <laughs> yeah, I'm very excited about this.、Um, I don't remember who it was that suggested Nightwood. I think it was someone on the Patreon, but、um, to briefly introduce this book, I believe it was published in 1936. Is that correct? Whatever. It's by a delusional American woman who was at the time living in Paris among the、um, Bohemian、uh, layabouts that included、um, all sorts of important literary figures in the early 20th century. Um, T.S. Eliot is a champion of this, and the novel is a strange, cerebral, gothic sex freakout about lesbians and Jews. And I was baffled and entranced by this. But what did you all think? Well, someone I... will have to make a comment. Though, thank you, Alex, dear. <laughs> of course, personally, was a huge fan of this work. I found it to be like, I thought it was really interesting how it、uh, narratively it spans such a wide expanse of time, but it only, it only deigns to show you these like brief flashing images of these characters' lives, mostly expressed through like long winded, frantic monologues about <laughs> the ecstasy of 
connection and about the horror thereof as well. Um, and I thought it was like a really interesting, like early expression of uh, the the vast archetypes of like lesbians, uh, transgender women, um, and uh, gay guys and uh people who have uh, aspirations that are well above their 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 born nature I thought it was I thought it was a really fascinating collage of these uh, types of people wow that's beautifully said mate what did you think about this I've been dying to hear your thoughts since I finished it um well as I said like earlier before the recording started I could like really see why T.S. Eliot liked this book I don't know. Um, <laughs> like, okay. So, like, for the first half, when it was like, I don't know, like, like in in Paris, you know, in <laughs> le café sur la rue, you know, I was like really into that vibe. Like, um, like I'm like a huge sucker for anything that's like, like very, very like European in that way. And it's like I don't know, just like decadent and glamorous. Mm. Um. But, like, midway through, it's, like, completely derailed, right? <laughs> by Oh, yeah. By, like, a really heinous tranny. I was, like, so, like, I felt so called out. I don't know. Like, <laughs> like, I don't know. I, I just, like, I, I was, like... I, it felt like a personal attack in some way because I know that I'm like like this person in a lot of ways. Um, because she loves the like, or is what? Sorry, I'm like getting derailed. I don't know. I'm like so emotional. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to hear. Wait, how do you relate with this transgender character? Because I did not, I did not, I was not reading May from her at all. Maybe that's just like my insecurity, but like. <laughs> Um, I, I don't know, just like the way that, that this person was like going on like insane rants, um, and like talking about insane things. I don't know. Mm. Well, that sounds familiar to me as well. So maybe we all have a piece of her in us. Um, Anmar, what was your first impression of the book? Wait, we're talking about the doctor when we're talking about the trans character, right? Yeah. <laughs> I okay. barely pick, I barely picked it up, but that doctor is so fucking insane. And I can't really begin to understate how much of the book is just her talking. Yeah. Fact- Do you think oh. that the doctor's trans? Because it is, I think she wrote in 1937. Like, you know, the idea of transness wouldn't have been completely new. Mm. And I feel like this is written to be a gay guy who just, like, loves to put on a dress and wig. Well, maybe what is the ultimate difference between transgender people and gay men who like to put on dress and wig? <laughs> like, what is... <laughs> all the I best think... transgender people in the world are all gay men who like to put on dress and wig, as you said. <laughs> so, like... I don't think the doctor had any attraction to femininity other than its ability to allow him to, like, stay at home and give some rough and tumble man kids and like bake him a pie. <laughs> and I no. feel like that's gay man, not trans woman. Like he he wants to be a woman in so far as it allows him to sleep with men. 
No, to be honest, I've met like a million trannies who are annoying in this specific way. Like okay. in the year 2022, this person would be transgender, I think. Charlotte Bancroft. It's not even, it's not even 2022 <laughs> anymore. It's 2023, whatever. That's true. Yeah, but but yeah, I, I felt I felt I, I I did feel a strong degree of rec- recognition in this character. I'm interested to I, hear if any of you else identified with any of the characters here. I guess for me, I would say um the really heartbroken lesbian who spends the last like 30 pages of the novel just literally shrieking um i'm a big fan of her did any of you have a character that sat with you i similar to me also think that i related most to the doctor the doctor (laughs) who's like given up on love who basically has said like crawl around in the dust and that's the best way to live like be an ignorant beast i i definitely feel that tendency in myself Mm -hmm. alex what about you um this may just be my delusions of grandeur speaking however i particularly related to robin in her um in her absolute destructive attraction to everybody that she came across and in the uh, the way that it denigrated her in the end to like barking on the floor like a dog. Yeah. <laughs> I I felt that really, really resonated with me. I was like, it was a it was a she's literally me moment. Yeah. For sure. Okay, Taylor, I'm curious to hear about your general impressions of the book as well as if you have any character that's saying to your soul. Okay, everyone, please don't judge me. I read two page 55. <laughs> I'm proud of um, you for that. Thank you, thank you. Um, I as well, I really liked The Doctor. Um, yeah, such an enticing character. Do we think that The Doctor is nihilistic in some ways? Um, I just, one line that I like kept reading over and over And again, that goes with what you were saying about like, he's given up on love and like that it's not a thing is when they say one of two things to find someone who is so stupid, he can lie to her or to love someone so much that she can lie to him. Um, I'm just wondering, like later in the book, does this person like find hope? No, no. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no it goes the opposite Hold direction oh, i have no. some quotes if you'd like to hear the doctor's raving ramblings from the chapter go down matthew uh, matthew <laughs> being the doctor <laughs> so this is matthew speaking to um nora you are full to the brim with pride but i am an empty pot going forward saying my prayers in a, in a dark place because I know no one loves, I least of all, and that no one loves me. That's what makes most people so passionate and bright because they want to love and be loved. When there is only a bit of lying in the ear to make the ear forget what time is compelling. So I, Dr. O'Connor say, creep by softly, softly, and don't learn anything because it's always learned of another person's body. Take action in your heart and be careful whom you love. For a lover who dies, no matter how forgotten, will take somewhat of you to the grave. Be humble like the dust, as God intended, and crawl. And finally, you'll crawl to the end of the gutter and not be missed and not much remembered. Woo! It is, <laughs> it is funny because um, 
I think you could characteristically describe his philosophy as nihilistic. And yet I did find that his worldview was actually somewhat more affirming and like a realistic way of coping with the horror of being alive than a lot of actual like nihilistic philosophy like expresses. Like the idea of at least like denigrating yourself to dog mode is at least something feasible and is better than, you know, lots of religious doctrine and other contemporary patterns of governing your life. I'd agree. Like, I think one thing I want to talk about is we have a couple different narrative threads. So one is we have this dude, Felix, his dad pretended to be a baron. Felix kind of might know, probably doesn't know. And Felix is obsessed with being an aristocrat, which is fake. And then he gets the crazy horny lesbian pregnant and they have a kid, but the kid is like basically a dud. And then parallel to this, we have lesbian drama extravaganza (laughs) with this gay slash trans doctor kind of narrating and screaming in the background. And do we think that Juna Barnes is trying to reconcile like, what it means to have a child and like the fact that if you're a queer person you're kind of only signing up for when you're signing up for a relationship you're not necessarily signing up to like continue your line and that might make you go crazy because all that exists in your relationship is the other person Mm -hmm. it's a good question may what do you think about that i mean i don't know I guess like the other way in which I relate to this doctor character is that he also has like the delusional fantasy of like escaping into the, into the woods, you know, with his like husband or whatever. Um, I, I, I don't know. It is like something that's like very seductive to think about, but like, it's obviously like not, it's like not really very realistic. I feel like in most cases, um, but yeah, that's the kind of like, I, I think, yeah, that is like a very salient point is like, um, the like inability to reproduce, like either you can like learn to live with it or it will like drive you insane. And I feel like this is like very much leaning into like the queer insanity aspect. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think so too. And it's interesting that this is a, uh, question of sexuality that, has uh endured for you know almost a hundred years now i feel like it is one of like the primordial defining like queer characteristics which is uh i have triumphed over nature and can experience the greatest ecstasies of pleasure known to man but oops i can't continue my species like oops uh like foucault has always written about um how you have to balance your uh, non-productive sex with like actual like civic duty and social performance and uh, this book is like so sunk into like the nasty like sewage gutters of 1920s party that like it feels like there's no way out and uh, once you've decided and elected to pursue this lifestyle full-time you're um, you're doomed to sex melt forever and <laughs> there's no no saving you and you can only go all the way in the opposite direction to become the dog in the woods basically alex what do you think 
Yeah, I find that the uh, the anxiety over not being able to produce offspring or not having the drive to produce offspring like manifests itself in different ways throughout different characters, which I think is really interesting, especially in like Guido, obviously the child being like a essentially like a postnatal abortion, like is basically <laughs> like horrid, like Dickensian kind of presence um i i think is like a representative of the like loveless and like horrid relationship that he came out of but is also representative of that like um that like frightening inability to continue one's line but i think that that anxiety like appears throughout several different characters um notably i think jenny especially in oh, her yeah. uh, in her uh, obsession for uh, collecting the ephemera of the people around her and adopting the things about them that she finds fascinating in hopes to make herself fascinating because it's like, that's kind of all that she has going forward. I think that's like a very, um, that's like a very notable part of almost every character is like, okay, so I'm not, I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to produce a great bloodline going forward. So I have to throw myself into whatever, um, whatever self-representative thing I can create, which like has positive and negative effects for depending on the character, I believe. Mm, very true. Coco, what did you think of all of this? Um, I mean, I really like the book. I really like the character of Robin. I thought the way that Gina Barnes wrote the novels, or I think her prose was really nice. Yeah, I agree. Robin I really was interesting like, too. I really like Robin's relationship with the knight, mm. and like how she became like an entirely different person. Yeah, the knight is a big concept here. I think. Okay. Isn't the name of the chapter or something? Like, I don't remember the name of the chapters anymore. It's like something like really camp and ridiculous about like the night. What was it called? Watch, it's Watchmen, What of the Night. Oh my God. Girl, be real. <laughs> Are you fucking yeah, kidding it's me? Like, it's like, it's like, it's like very like Tristan Undisolda in that way. Uh-huh. Um, it's like all about like the day versus the night, which of course Wagner took from Novales, but yeah. Uh, yeah. But it is powerful. And I was also very interested in that night watch sequence which is like basically like the first time that the book becomes like a dialogue and all of a sudden it's literally just like couch therapy and there's almost nothing else in the entire chapter but them talking back and forth at each other um and like recollecting on uh like the memories of this romance and everything and i guess like the philosophical uh, point of all of it is like uh this extremely detailed illustration of like the night as this phase you enter um that like kills your soul and allows you like a uh a christ-like rebirth every day um and allows for like this shuffling of personas what did you all make of this like night philosophy? Because it's so dense. I have like, I need help picking through all of it. <laughs> Wait, before we go there, okay. What does Robin exist as a character in her own right? Okay, I was wondering this Robin too. Barely, 
I didn't go back through and check, but like Robin maybe has like a paragraph total of her own speech. Uh-huh. And then the rest of the book is just everyone dealing with the chaos Robin is creating. And then also the doctor, when he goes on that like drunken like binge session after like the penultimate chapter, is he not like saying that he like literally um, like created a mythology of Robin and it's like this like imagined like I, I couldn't tell if he was being literal or not, but it is a question about if Robin exists or not this lesbian tornado i think that robin exists i think that the doctor feels like he has created by in by not stopping jenny who eventually like elopes with oh my god there's jenny who elopes with with robin Robin and takes her from nora I think that that's what the doctor's talking about. Like he has created like this huge drama by not stopping that. But I think that Robin, I think that Robin physically exists in the narrative of the book. But I do think it's really interesting that Juna Barnes doesn't give Robin her own chapter. We never are inside of Robin's head. We get like a few terse sentences, like where she yells at her husband, the Baron, because like he's, she doesn't want to sleep with him or like, being mad at Nora in a couple scenes, but really she only speaks, she has like a couple sentences throughout the whole book. That's true. I mean, what do you make of it? Um, yeah, I guess like Robin is this sort of like the chaotic like center, <clears throat> which everything else revolves around. Um, yeah, definitely. I don't know. I don't have that much more to add onto what everybody else said. Have any of you like met a Robin before, like in your real life? Because I feel like I've maybe encountered three, and every single one of them I've ever met is like the most intense, horrifying person I've ever come into contact with. Like I want to be a Robin, but whenever I've met them in person, it is so frightening. I know one Robin, and she did wreck my life. So. <laughs> I feel like the quintessential Robin is like actually a gay man now. It's like 27 year old, six foot two, goes to the gym, sleeps with every single person in the world and just like wrecks reality through like the sheer force of his erotic ego. There's there's so many of these people and I'm terrified of all of them. Alex, you have I to have known a Robin. shallowness to that kind of Robin because it depends on like, the facile attraction of gay men, which is so meaningless. It's not this kind of like world ending love that Nora has for Robin. The person I'm thinking of is a straight woman Uh who like really rent apart realities um, despite sleeping with very few people. That's interesting. Now that you mentioned it, I guess there is like a superficial element to homosexual beauty that makes them impossible of the Robin layer. (laughs) Like... (laughs) Women who are Robin actually do sound much more terrifying. Alex, I know you've met a Robin and I want to know about them. <laughs> um, so I know a couple different Robins. I was going to <laughs> similar thing of I know a couple of I know a couple of gay guy Robins. However, I would agree with the fact that like the quintessential Robin experience is really something that can only be created by a straight woman. Um I don't want to um I don't want to specifically name anybody but I um was well acquainted with somebody in high school who had like 
no discernible personality of her own. And I found that it was like, she, it was, it was very strange to me because I was friends with her and I was not really able to discern any distinct personality traits. However, everybody she was ever in a relationship or involved with sexually or romantically seemed to find her to be this, like this, um, this force that just like whisked them away into nothingness um, by a reflection of the, the personality of the partner. Mm -hmm. It was like, it's like really, I don't know. It's like, like I was saying before with Jenny, I feel like it's almost like the inverse of that. Whereas Jenny like takes in the ephemera of other people and constructs her identity off of that. Robin's identity is mostly constructed off like, the way that she's able to um, uh, have other people react to her, uh-huh. which is why their relationship was so um, electric and why they had to elope and uh, break off all of their prior engagements. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense to me. Taylor, are you familiar with this archetype? Oh, she's hopping off. I said, <laughs> sweet dreams, Taylor. <laughs> Oh, I mean, hi, good night. Good night. Hi. Thanks for coming by. Um, May, what about you? To be, to be honest, I feel I feel like um this is like a actually kind of like a very common mode of portrayal for like lesbianism in the media. Uh-huh. Like I feel like it is always this like like cosmic yearning that like destroys the universe. I would say like persona, um, the bitter tears of Petra von Kant or like yeah. Mulholland Drive as like kind of examples of this, where it just like I don't know, it's like too like women that are like black holes orbiting each other and it like destroys the universe. That's um, definitely true. The two black holes touching one another. I guess it's because I was just reading um, the diary of Anne Frank for next week's episode. And she talks a lot about how um, like her first romantic inclinations are placed into the body of other girls and how like um, she would like look for um reminders of like Venus and furs and like Venus of Urbino and gazing upon other girls around her and i feel like that unfortunately just lost the only woman here who's <laughs> not <laughs> transgender so we'll never be able to prove this theory but i feel like women do have like that first brush of romance with like other female shapes and then actually making it real is capable of like melting the world into nuclear reactor cosmic space death yeah um well, it's very like autogynophilic, I guess, in a way. Like gazing, it's like gazing into the mirror. But like, what happens when you like turn two mirrors on each other? It just like reflects endlessly. <gasps> Feedback loop. Uh, <laughs> I love that. What do you think, Omar? I I agree with May that we have a lot of like gay stereotypes. The one that I felt absolutely called out by is that the trans slash gay doctor at one point is talking about Jenny, this kleptomaniac harpies things that she's collected. And then he's like, well, I got a nice frying pan that I could like cook six eggs in and I don't want any of her stuff. And I'm just like, okay, at me, gay male behavior, (laughs) just like collecting housewares. And also, like, we have you hauling lesbians. I don't know that this book is 
really trying to do something new or different with queerness. And I think it's, it's interesting that we, like you talked about Mulholland Drive, that we still have the same conception of like U-hauling depressed lesbians who wreck each other's lives. Like, what was that French movie, Something Something Blue? Oh, Blue is the Warmest Color. Yeah. Like, also, like, depressed sa- depressed lesbians wrecking each other's lives in Paris. Do we think that, like, the, these tropes are inherent to, like, being a lesbian? Or do we think that it is the modern condition? Because this is being written in the 1930s. Like, mm-hmm. um, it is, especially in large cities, like post-industrialization, you have the same kind of like boring email jobs exist. Like that's basically what the Baron does. He has a boring email job at a bank. Do we think that it's lesbianism in modernity that has these tropes or lesbianism itself? Good question. I was wondering about that myself. And I feel like there is like a fundamental like power that I was kind of like touching on because it is like the first like shape that uh becomes alluring for women and it's like it's so pure and like the Chthonian vaginal power of women is like so intense that when you like put it together it absolutely does have the quality that makes um authors and filmmakers like fear and tremble however when I'm like thinking about any lesbian I've ever met like in my real life none of them really detonate that nuclear element and instead they just like sequester off from the world and like gather like knickknacks and charming belongings and forge sweet little lives for themselves to be conducted in private but i could be wrong about this um i don't know like my my like younger sister she like goes to um an all girls high school um and what is it like she's like straight but like one time she got like sucked into like an abusive like lesbianic relationship with a lesbian at the high school um and it like really like was of that quality um so i i like believe that lesbians are freaky i don't know just because of that like one experience my sister had Mm um i don't know (laughs) Coco, what do you think about lesbians? <laughs> um, my older sister's a lesbian, and I really like her. So, um, <laughs> I mean, she's definitely like a Robin. Uh huh. She has a really bad habit of like getting into like committed relationships and then just like getting drunk and then like breaking it off with them and like disappearing. Hmm. So, yeah. Alex, what's your take on the lesbian inquiry? The lesbian inquiry. I I did find the lesbian relationships in this book to be true to life uh, in a certain sense, just because I recognize this quality that I know from friends of mine and just from like my life where it's like, there's this aspect of the lesbian relationship that tends to have this like, we're not only in a relationship but we're also like best friends and we're like seven years old and we're at a sleepover and we're sharing our deepest darkest secrets um and it's like that is being transposed into the relationship format which it's like 
both of those realities existing at once, mm. um, which kind of, I think, has the uh, potential to kind of explode the brain, um, which I think happens at so many different points within this book. I think with every different combination of two woman characters in this book, there's a sense of like, we are, um, we're like BFFs, but we're also like, fated to be in love forever and it's like and it's to some degree and in reality like the combination of those two things that can create such like nuclear explosiveness mm-hmm. thing too yeah i think a good comparison for like that relationship on screen as well as madoka like madoka magica have any of you seen it um no. i tried to i like could not I don't know, like screaming, like pink toddlers. I cannot. <laughs> yeah, but then you you get into it once the screaming pink toddlers like start getting like beheaded and like crucified and like ripped apart and like cursed to infinite loops of um infinite um celestial cursed unrequited lesbian longing. I think you'd get oh. into it, but you just have to. Push. I'll, I'll give it a chance. I need to like. I need to like lean. I need to like lean into into it more. Um, yeah, you can just watch the first two recap movies because it's basically everything that's in the anime and it's just a, a little bit more digestible instead of having to commit to watching like all 12 episodes of the show or whatever. All right, yeah, I'll do that. But yeah, I I don't know. I, I think that representation of lesbians will probably continue forever. This is definitely one of the most uh, alarming representations of it i've ever read i like i said that fucking uh chapter which was at watchman what of the night like really unnerved me and made me feel very queasy and i was like ripping my hair out like going insane like reading like these two people just like spiral deeper down into like this strange philosophical modernist nightmare speech How much of that do you think is like inherently lesbian versus just like, I think the concept that I really stuck onto and I forget if it was in that chapter or in go down Matthew, uh-huh. where they're, where the doctor and Nora are talking about how Robin's desire is for, to, for Nora to remember Robin in a way that Robin wants to be remembered. Mm. And I thought that that was like a really cutting portrayal of lots of kinds of abusive love. And I think that abusive probably is the right word. Like Robin was, we learned as controlling, like didn't want Nora to leave or have any friends or other contacts. That like Robin's true aim was to constantly, was to basically terrorize Nora with the constant thought of herself. Mm hmm. Yeah, I think that's very true. And I, I think it, it catches on like the kind of modernist instincts that was very popular with like Henry Miller, because those also have the same like spiraling out of control, like screaming texture to them, like even in like Tropic of Cancer or especially like in the Rosie Crucifixion. I feel like there's like some element to those writers in like 20s, 30s, like Paris, who they all discovered something very unwieldy, which is like the sexual flesh of the world and they they could not unsee it and i think that probably speaks more truly than like the lesbian 
element, but I was very touched by the idea of um, desperately wanting to be remembered in the way you want to be remembered by your lover. Um, I highlighted this one little passage. Love becomes the deposit of the heart, analogous in all degrees to the findings, quote unquote, in a tomb. Ugh. <laughs> so true. I had the same line highlighted. Yeah, that was that's a banger. Yeah. You went off there. Um, May, what are your reflections on this nature of love? Um gosh. I don't I feel like I have like no right to comment because I've like never really been in love. Me neither. Um... Well, <laughs> I don't know. I'm every single episode of my show, the, the question of do I even know what love is comes up and I still don't know. So I probably haven't been. I mean, like you, you, you know me, Zach. I'm like very like repressed. I like, <laughs> I'm like not not willing. I'm like not willing to like venture into the tomb, but um, so to speak. But but yeah. So I I feel like I I like, cannot comment on this really. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Alex? Um, I too have a quote that uh from here that I've highlighted that kind of that goes along with this very well and that I think expresses this like gut-wrenching desire to like be somebody within the context of love um where kind of the main conceit is to become nobody within somebody else which uh the doctor in uh in Watchmen One of the Night says and do I know my sodomites and what the heart goes bang up against if it loves one of them especially if it's a woman loving one of them, what do they find then that this lover has committed the unpardonable error of not being able to exist and they come down with a dummy in their arms? Um, it's I a just little found, intense, isn't it? it? It's really, like, horrifying. Um, it's... Yeah, and I think this is, like, something that recurs, like, over and over again throughout the book this this passage is obviously about like a hypothetical woman who's like in love with a gay man but it's like it 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 really is terrifying there's like this uh this like cliff that so many of the characters in this book like stand at the edge of of Mm -hmm. like of um of maintaining one's uh, personhood and also giving oneself over completely to somebody else. And there's like this existential terror within doing that. Mm. Coco, do you have any reflections on this? I'm sorry, what was that? What do you think about this idea of like disappearing into someone else for love? Do you think it's terrifying or evil or is it a good uh um a good pursuit what do you think i mean i don't think it's a good pursuit i feel like i've definitely like kind of like disappeared into people for love Mm -hmm. and it doesn't work out well but i don't think it's that terrifying i feel quite frightened of it myself um but i don't know if i've ever been able to successfully do it have you ever melted into someone else before on mar I mean, mm-hmm. like, melted, like, I mean, I've definitely, like, taken on people's, like, interests to, mm. like, be more compatible with them and kind of, like, lost myself in, like, the relationship. And it's, like, I don't know. 
looking back, it's just like embarrassing, but it's like not that scary. <laughs> I guess it's like, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Sorry. I, I find it like very embarrassing and scary, which maybe that's just me, but that's also like why this particular quote like resonated with me so much is because I like personally have this like really bad habit of, um, of when I, uh, when I do like fall in love, which I think happens like very frivolously and like at the drop of a hat for me, um, it, it comes along with, uh, a complete loss of any sense of propriety or, uh, responsibility to oneself or others, um, which tends to like derail whatever is happening else Mm. in my point, which is why I think uh, this book really struck such a chord with me is because I, I recognized that part of myself that is so willing to uh, lose myself in the, in the like dark rainforest of other people. Well, I guess the other thing too, is that um, it might not be terrifying unless you're kind of this obnoxious modernist person to begin with, who is just as like, I've seen like the inquit turnings of the world and I can't like unsee it. Like help me. It's like, you know, the manic hysterical, like screaming that every single author of this era was so into like um, T.S. Eliot, Lawrence was doing this too. Even Thomas Hardy was like, is like screaming about all of it. Henry Miller, Anise Nin, they're all having this, like, you know, career-spanning panic attack. And the idea that this book was 190,000 words before T.S. Eliot, like, lopped it up and, like, chopped it into something vaguely readable. It was a different woman who chopped it up first. T.S. Eliot did the final sanding. Oh, my God. It had to go through two rounds. Yeah. (laughs) We were talking about this before we started, but this book is, like, it's shrieking. It's so intense. Like the when they're like going through like this therapeutic spiel, they're like constantly like throwing things off the table and like ripping their hair out and like beating on the table and screaming. And it's like it's very exhausting to read. Yeah. At one I point mean, in the Oh, go ahead, me. Yeah, I feel like this is like always the thing that I don't really like about modernist prose so much is that it can just like get into this like like it feels like a manic episode. I don't know how else to describe it. Like, um, just this like endless like vomit of like shrieking concepts, and just like having this like impulse to like do everything all at once. Um, uh, and this like endless like adrenaline within the prose that I I, I feel I feel like like makes like modernism like so exhausting to me personally. Mm-hmm. When I was reading this, I remember because when I was an under- undergraduate, I thought I was going to be like a modernist. Like that was going to be like my specialty was like modernism because I was so obsessed with like with Miller in particular. And I remember this one girl who was like really into like um, 16th century like English poetry. She like asked me why. And I was like, oh, you know, I think it's interesting. And then she says, well, someone's got to do it. And I'm glad it's not me. And I was always like put off by that until revisiting this a little older and more mature and the mania does wax on on the on your uh like integrity it makes you feel weak and woozy by the end yeah well it's like i guess like the whole like purpose of modernism was to like 
try new things, I guess, and just like do everything new. But I, I, I feel like in some instances they went overboard a little bit. Um, if this was two hundred thousand words, this would have been so overboard. Like it's uncomparable. I would like to read that. You know, the the whole unchopped diarrhea. <laughs> like honestly, yeah. Honestly, Zach, wait, like what, what is like the book that's going to make me like modernism? Because my dad is like similarly a huge modernist fan. He's like always uh-huh. pushing these books on me. And I, I like, this is like my one rebellion in general. I, I'm, I love my father, but my one rebellion is hating modernism. I would say um, Sexist by Henry Miller. All right. I will give it a read. Yeah, I would say that because his uh- other stuff is good, but. It's um, The Rosie Crucifixion, which is his trilogy of uh, books about his time in New York leading up to when he left for Paris. It's his most um, optimistic and it has the most amount of restraint. And I think Tropic of Cancer and some of his other books from the early writings are a lot less polished and are a little exhausting. So I think Sexist is my recommendation. All right, I'll put it on the list. Alex, what were you going to say before I so crudely interrupted you? Oh, nothing at all. I just, um, I, I'm, I'm making a note of this for myself since I, I as well am kind of making my initial forays into modernism right now after a long time of kind of uh, being resentful against everybody in my life who recommended it to me. <laughs> I'm not 100% convinced the book would be worse if it was 190,000 words. I think it would be horrible if it kept the same tenor throughout all of it. But I think that the fact that we jump from Robin, like hating her child and leaving her marriage directly into like the, like the depths of her fighting with the girlfriend she ran away with. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we're constantly at like a DH Lawrence novel climax tenor of both prose and emotional intensity throughout the entire novel, basically after the second chapter, is what makes it really difficult. And it's, it's Judah Barnes seems to be like quite observant and able to write like situations that can illuminate the interiority of characters, but she has no room to do that in this really slim novel that's also juggling a pretty ridiculous and convoluted plot. Mm-hmm. And I feel like maybe if there were a few extra chapters, we could actually like have a quiet degradation of any one of the relationships instead of just the firestorm. Yeah, she doesn't let you have one page in which this isn't a D.H. Lawrence climax. You're exactly right. Like this literally feels like the like the mud death in Women in Love, but like mm-hmm. for 200 pages and when you are reading something of that intensity and it's nonstop and it's so extreme about what philosophies it's prescribing, like I could really see how someone could walk away from this, like hating modernism forever and like never wanting to ever read it again because bitch does not chill out. Like sit down, girl. Like we need to take a breath, breathe. No, it's so true. I I really wanted to like live in the world more because you have like all these like interesting characters and this like beautiful, like, intriguing setting Mm -hmm. like let us let us like sort of like 
relax in the setting a bit more let us like just sort of like enjoy the atmosphere yeah did you notice that like all of those like gorgeous like gothic um descriptions of like perfumed rooms and like different styles of architecture in the rooms like it all vanishes as soon as like the therapy session starts and then it's just talking for the rest of the book literally until the last chapter yeah Yeah, it was like, like literally like like everything was like sucked out like just like with a vacuum. <laughs> the, the entire and go world. Down Matthew. Go ahead. Oh, and go down Matthew. It's like huge paragraphs that are just dialogue. Mm-hmm. Like giant. Like they're putting Shakespeare to shame. Yeah, and every time they talk it's for pages at a time. Like when the doctor speaks, he will speak for fucking three unbroken par- like pages with no paragraph breaks before another paragraph break one more page and then we get a little bit of whoever he's talking to it's oh it's exhausting yeah the way that i think that i uh parsed that aspect of the novel out before i was aware that it was uh originally like a longer work was that to me it just seemed like i don't know that was that was the thing that i i agree i had that criticism but i also kind of appreciated that it felt like the span of the novel was so long like time wise mm-hmm. but every kind of felt like this uh like crucial point where it was like a stained glass window image of like these like archetypes like clashing against each other um but and i i found a lot of value in uh in like only seeing these like like awful combinations of people clashing against one another but i think now that i am aware that there is like a longer novel kind of buried within this it it really i think would add to my enjoyment and my understanding to uh to be aware of like what these characters are like outside of outside of clashing with the deepest questions what it is to be human and to mm-hmm. love another and like I just feel like we also shouldn't look a gift horse in the mouth that this book is only 200 pages because for all we know it's just the screaming for a thousand more pages like it literally could just be like the screaming sure. <laughs> I have a question do we think that the book is well edited because no. there were a couple yeah there are a couple places where I'm just like why is this here and I think the first sentence is like in what is this the third chapter? No, the first mm-hmm. chapter in Bow Down. The quote is the way she said dinner and the way she said champagne gave meat and liquid their exact difference as if by having surmounted two mediums earth and air her talent running forward achieved all others. I'm just like and what? And what? <laughs> <laughs> and then in um night watchman whatever chapter when the doctor is like oh the gourmand knows what waters his fishes from and the valleys from which his wine was grown so too do i know where which districts the men whose cocks i suck come from i was like where is this going and the answer <laughs> is nowhere no cuz this all gets sucked into the pussy black hole like you, you can't escape it like that woman's relationship sucks out like any of like the potential use of the way someone says meat and champagne like 
I feel like those are details that could be charged with, um, you know, some sublime ache for, you know, the way people inhabit the world and their beautiful um, collections of detritus from it and the strange like collage pieces that come to assemble a life, but it doesn't do that because the women's pussies inhale everything. Oh. Yeah, it made me think specifically of the part where I'm like struggling to find it right now. I should have uh-huh. a bookmark in here, but it's the part where the doctor is in church and he's talking oh to this. Um, he's like having a full conversation with his penis. Um, and I just like that, that I would agree is the type of thing that I think could have so much more uh it could strike the notes of some of the better modernist literature that I've read if it were uh, given a context that made it feel meaningful or like thematically in place to me. Like as it is, it kind of just feels like a, another another wacky thing that this crazy transsexual doctor does throughout the course of the yeah. book. Yeah, truly. I feel like if this book were like written like nowadays or like by anybody else, I would like think it was like some sort of like like evil internet like tradcath manifesto about like the death of the West or whatever. Maybe it is about that. I don't know. It definitely does push on that often. And I kind of found myself getting a little irritated by that. It's like uh, not I keep bringing up the other moderners, but like Henry Miller, like when he reads through like you know the death of the west stuff he like is like let's just like shove a fucking bomb up the ass of the world and explode it then if it's over like whatever like let's you know detonate it for as much as possible but this like seems to just lounge around in too much misery for my taste yeah truly i'm like so sick of the death of the west (laughs) (laughs) me too girl it's dead it died you know it's 2023 we can dance on his corpse let's go yeah, I found that especially that, like, element of it came out in uh, Felix and his, like, never-ending, like, struggle with his presumed aristocracy that he, like, ambiguously knows is fake and his, like, uh, the way that his relationships with these tragic lesbians, like, mirrors his, like, uh, it's like his... Uh, impotent grasping at this lesbian is like a mirror of his impotent grasping at aristocracy or some like uh, vague idea of, of uh, being a baron. And it, I don't know, that was one of the like less interesting kind of character motifs for me. I was like, girl, what is it even affecting materially within your life? Like his life seemed to be no different whether or not he was a baron. Like he was still, like pining after this lesbian like having this like fail son like wait i I, thought the whole aristocracy thing was supposed to be like pointing towards being closeted for felix yeah like i Mm -hmm. thought like the the way that i read it is like yeah it's on the surface about like this jewish dude who like pretends to be a bear and then his son has to deal with the consequences but then like the Berlin, all the people in the Berlin circus who also take on titles, I really thought that was just like the respectable lives that all of these like Berlin queers are pretending to have. I would see that too, but I feel like the book spends far too much time like detailing his psychology around it, particularly like in the first 
section for it to, you know, just to be kind of the, um, like, queer titling. I feel like it's definitely that, too, but maybe it's both at the same time. Maybe May has a solution. I mean, yeah, the book in general, it's, like, very, like, insanely neurotic about, like, all these people who are, like, not really, like, able to live up, in a sense, to this, like sort of decaying aristocratic European ideal that like exists in the setting that they're like living in, you know. Mm. Um it also feels to me like at this time, like the whole aristocratic aesthetic had already been killed off. Like I feel like by 36 everyone was over it. Like Titanic had already kind of sunk and the uh class imagery of that had also gone up in flames plus like the mud rape of world war one against every single male in europe like i feel like she's a little too little too late with that Yeah, that's that's like very true that's why like either either the book should have like just like existed purely in this fantastical realm of like europe um, and like not brought the like insane shrieking neuroticism into it or just like gone in a different direction. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like the juxtaposition of the two does not really work out too well. Usually I'm very happy to just like accept, you know, any book is like a masterpiece. And I will say I this is a uniquely neurotic reading experience that I have never, ever experienced in my entire life. And so for that I think it is highly unique and a, an especially interesting piece of art, but it is irritating and exhausting <laughs> for real. And I guess like the only comparison point I have for something that's even a shade as mentally unwell as this book is like Brett Easton Ellis. And like, that's funny. Like Brett Easton Ellis is like hilarious. Like this was just like wearing upon the soul. Yeah, I mean, I guess, like, in a few months, we're going to do My Twisted World, so buckle up. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Actually, that uh, one's pretty soon. That's going to be the fourth one in the list. That's cool. I mean, I'm really excited to read that, actually. Yeah. Um. Yeah, but you're completely right, Zach. It was, like, a very, like, unique and intense experience to read this this book. I don't, like, re- necessarily like, regret having read it, even though I have a lot of critiques just because mm-hmm. it like was such an, an intense experience. It was especially intense to read in two sittings. I wish I had read it for like slowly over a month instead, but I didn't do that. Uh, does anyone else have any final comments about this extremely messy, neurotic, modernist freakout? Amor says, um, no, I'm done talking about this now. He's shaking his head. <laughs> I'm not done talking about it. I'm definitely going to force one of my friends to read it so that they can suffer with me. Mm-hmm. I Like, Juna Barnes is clearly a talented writer. Mm-hmm. Like, I, you can't diss her there. It's just like, I feel like she just... I feel like this is her diary. I feel like I'm not reading a novel. I feel like she put her personal problems on the page and I don't want to deal with them. It's so funny though, because like when I read diaries, like the diaries of Anise Nin or fucking Anne Frank, those are Mm -hmm. edited and very polished and are Mm -hmm. immaculate distillations of those people's lives that they particularly like present to the public. It's exactly the idea of like enshrining yourself and your lover, but like made well. And like, this is like 
what happens like if you accidentally crack open your head and like you splatter blood all over the page and then the blood takes the shape of the representation of you which is both a um, high praise and the most damning criticism i can offer for this yeah what about you alex any any closing thoughts about this i think the um I, I agree with pretty much all the criticism that's been leveled at this um, over the course of it and also all of the like positive aspects of it. However, I think that for me, it was all kind of made worth it by the final image of oh. Rock like, on her knees, dog. Um, like, I, like I said earlier, I found that like very valuable and resonant. Um, however, I, I totally understand um, the criticism of this kind of just feeling like uh, Juna Barnes, like personal screed against whatever like subculture mm-hmm. she was, the niche problems thereof. However, I do think that um, it was redeemed for me by these brief moments of like painful and striking humanity, like the carriage fight sequence, the dog barking, like ending. Um, so I think that for those reasons, I found this to be uh, worthwhile for me. Yeah, I think it's worthwhile too. And I'm glad you brought up the dog barking bit again. Because, oh, sorry, what character is it? It's Robin, right? No. Yeah, Robin. It is Robin. A dog. Yeah, at the very end, she's like running around her house that she's like ran away to in America. And then she just like gets on the floor and starts barking. And it is fascinating that this um, centrifugal, like celestial object that burns the lives of everyone around her is just yipping and barking and like rolling around on the floor at the end of the novel. That feels special. But I I do think that it is forecasted like repeatedly throughout the novel because the doctor is repeatedly talking about like, beasts who are turning into women and women turning into beasts and this idea of like queerness as like not being really being alive mm-hmm. or being something less than human so i think that they're zach i know earlier in the uh, earlier you said like picking apart the philosophy of the night is really complicated yeah. i i think that the the harder part is actually figuring out what does juna barnes value in humanity because I have one thing that I am still trying to pick apart is what did Robin lose when she moved to America with Jenny that eventually led her to turn into like a yipping dog? <laughs> and I don't know that that's super clear. I'm not sure that Juna Barnes knows either. <laughs> because like, it's not really like the loss of Nora because she was like fine for a while after that. Like, and she also, and Robert definitely knows that like Nora's always going to pine after her in some way. But like, is it aging? Is it the fact, is it America? Like what, what drove Robin over the edge? It might be time. Uh, there's one quote that seems uh, useful. Time isn't long enough, she said, striking the table. It isn't long enough to live down her nights. God, she cried. What is love? Man seeking his own head. The human head so rented by misery that even the teeth weigh. I feel like uh, perhaps the endless onslaught of time and the the recognizing of its passage is enough to start melting everything apart. Um, But like you said, I can't say for certain. And I... uh, 
I remember reading the passage and being amused, but not necessarily um, moved, moved or understanding. But it is special. Yeah. It is very special. I was definitely shocked. <laughs> Me too. Can you imagine being like a polite, like little American lady in 1936, like at home, like working on like your knitting while, uh, you know, the war is beginning to unfold in, in Europe and you just pick up. Nightwood by Juna Barnes. <laughs> I think this would break me if I was like in 1936 reading this. I'm like shocked that it got published. Like published for whom? Who read this? <laughs> what? Yeah, I, I, I'm really like. Was it just like 14 Boston lesbians, and all of them were like, work. <laughs> Juna. <laughs> Juna, you slayed her. Oh my God. But you know what? That is special that a somewhat. I think this book is lightly influential or is at least like literary, like well regarded. Like, I think a cult classic. I think it's in the canon, I would say, um, to some degree. And it is nice that Juna and her little clique of uh, 14 dykes in America were able to get this published and um, force its way into cultural prominence. Yeah, and I think before we started recording, we all re- mentioned that we read the our, our first published 1937 or whatever version. Yeah. And I was surprised at like how explicit they were allowed to be. Like, what was the one scene where it's like some random singer whose kid gets bitten by a rat and dies, but he was like off fucking sailors at the dock? Yeah. And I was just like, okay, why are we allowed to say this? But I don't think like the word lesbian or like even like sleeping together between women was mentioned throughout the entire book. No. It is mentioned that they love each other over and over yeah. and over like, again. It's very clear that they're lesbians. But I was just like, why can we have a fucking and sucking gay man? But there's like zero explicit lesbian sexuality allowed in the original edit. No, that's that's, that's so true. I like I like I like would have liked the book a lot more if it if it like include that element. Like I I wanted it to just be like like lesbian softcore in like beer a beautiful European setting. Like that, okay, that's you will love like I can't believe you haven't read The Rainbow by D.H. Lawrence. Like that's literally what that book is. It's just as like I'll do it. It's pastoral. It's a pastoral like special transgender basically like she's like a spiritually like a crazy trans girl on a farm who like is just running around uh having sex and contemplating her own feelings and then getting into like a prissy lesbian relationship with her teacher so like lovely it's it sounds lovely. right up my alley honestly though i've like i've like kind of come around on nightwood because i do i do love an insane screed so you know what listeners go read it yeah i would absolutely say this is such a unique experience and i've never read anything as unhinged and the fact that it was this unhinged in 1936 i mean she is the moment (laughs) she was that moment for sure she was that moment. I, I wanted to read one more <laughs> passage that um, made me uncomfortable because it felt too true to me. In the beginning, after Robin went away with Jenny to America, I searched for her in the ports, not literally, in another way. Suffering <laughs> is the decay of the heart. All that we have loved becomes the forbidden when we have not understood it at all. As the pauper is the rudiment of a city, knowing something of the city, which the city for its own destiny wants to forget. So the lover must go against nature to find love. Oh. 
<laughs> Truly. I love relating to hysterical lesbians in 1936 having a 200-page emotional panic attack. <laughs> uh, Coco, did she you have any... She was fucking mad as hell. She was she was fighting to write the most important book of her life. You can tell. She was pissed. <laughs> she was swinging. <laughs> she was, oh my God. Coco, did you have any final comments about this, this book? Uh, I mean, I really liked the book. I thought, I mean, it, I, I was very surprised that this was published in like the 1930s. Like it really shocked me something like this could be published mm-hmm. um i mean i I'm, I'm still kind of like processing the book i finished it yesterday and like it was a lot <laughs> but um i think i i mean i just love the way that like juno barnes like it's like her prose i thought it was just really like beautiful mm-hmm well, I think that is well said. I think it is beautifully written at times. Like when when the writing can pierce through the mania, it is often quite effulgent and sparkling. Hmm. Well, I think we have done our best to offer as much comment about this book as possible. So I'm excited to announce what we're reading next month, which is actually my selection. Uh, It's a book I haven't read yet. Uh, We are going to be reading The Sound of the Mountain by Kawabata Yasunari from 1954. It was serialized between 1949 and 1954 and then published as a single volume. Um, And it's one of the works uh, cited uh, for when Kawabata received the Nobel Prize for Literature um, I have a very tense relationship with this author, so I'm very excited to read this because I have hated every single thing I've ever read from him in extreme fury. And so I give him multiple chances every year to impress me more, um, and we're going to find out if he's going to be able to do it uh, next month. So uh, thank you all for joining me. I hope you had as much fun as I did, and I'll look forward to seeing you all next month for Chichino Book Club Volume 2, The Sound of the Mountain. Ja, mata ne.